as Paul catches a glimpse of God's amazing mercy revealed in Jesus, all he can do is shout glory. It's time for us to get down on our knees with Paul as we listen to the conclusion of Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 33. As we begin this morning, I want you to think of two things. I want you to think of depth. I want you to think of deep. I want you to think of what comes to your mind when you think of deep. And the second thing I want you to think about is I want you to think about riches. Probably my earliest memories go back to being raised in a lake. I was raised on Scroon Lake. And when I came to Texas, one of the things I had to get used to is that when, when I went out in a boat in Scroon Lake, I mean in the lakes down here in Texas, I can't see the bottom. How many of you were raised in areas where when you go out in the lake, you can look down about 30, 35 feet? When it's Scroon Lake, when you go out, it's about 35 feet as you're going out from the shore, and you can see all the way to the bottom. You can see the little shells that are down there. You can see the, the bass and the perch that are swimming and the, the lake trout and all that. But as a kid, we would go out farther, and one of the things we would try to do is when you got out so far, and Stern Lake is over 250 feet deep in some of the deepest holes, and suddenly you can't see the bottom anymore. It's the depths. Anybody ever gone diving and where you keep diving and you go down as deep as you can go and you hit the bottom and suddenly you get out so deep. When we were kids, we would get out so deep that we would dive down and we'd hold our breath. You know, we'd sit there, <sighs> get all the oxygen pumped into our lungs and then we'd dive down and we'd go as deep as we could go. Now, never forget the feeling as you go down deeper and deeper and deeper. My ears are popping, and I'm going to say, am I going to have enough air? And it was almost scary to get down into the darkness and down into the depths. And there was an awe in that, that I couldn't reach the bottom. You see, when you feel the bottom, you feel like, I got control of this thing. But when you're going down so deep, in fact, I've had that experience like in the ocean, going fishing about 30 miles out in the Gulf that makes Scroon Lake look like, uh, you know, a little pipsqueak place. And you dive down to those depths and you realize, man, it just seems like there's no bottom. That's the first thing I want you to think about. Think about this morning about a totally unfathomable depth. The second thing I want you to think about this morning is I want you to think of riches. Mary and I had the privilege on Monday night to go up to the Anatole. How many of you have been up at the Anatole? We're in the great big ballroom, and one of the people at our table said, praise God, we don't have to dust those big chandeliers. Man, the whole place is loaded with chandeliers. Why do we do that? Because it shows the wealth of Dallas, and it shows the incredible material power of the city of Dallas. Beautiful rug on the floor, and our friend that we were there to be with was winning an award. And he was winning an award for the entrepreneur and the generous person. Dallas Baptist University gives a very prestigious award. Mary Crowley's won the award. And Tom Landry's won the award. Bo Pilgrim has won the award. In fact, Bo Pilgrim actually introduced the governor. And Governor Perry was there, and he gave the keynote address. And here's the man that started out in West Texas, and he just starts out with a few chickens. And the chickens suddenly begin to multiply. And there were two chickens right on my plate, provided by Bo Pilgrim. But guess what? 
Bo Pilgrim's riches weren't exhausted because he fed probably about 1,200 people in the Anatole Ballroom that night. In other words, they talked about the billions that he'd made. From West Texas now, they send chickens all over the world. Big, big deal. Abby Holiday. How many of you ever heard of Abby Holiday, the realtor? She was there, and she prayed. So you had the governor, you had Bo Pilgrim, and the, the mayor was there. Tom Leppard was there, and they introduced him as that he came to Dallas. In fact, the company that wanted him to become the president actually moved their headquarters so that Tom Leppard would come to Dallas. He told them, I'll come to live in Dallas. I won't come back east, not going to come to any city, but I will come and live in Dallas. So the company that's worth billions of dollars actually brought him, brought their headquarters to Dallas so that he would come and be their CEO. So Mary and I are sit there. How many of you have ever been at a gathering like that? I kind of felt like when I was a little kid walking along, you've all heard me tell this story. As a little kid growing up in Florida, when I was in high school, I used to go down to Fort Lauderdale on my breaks. And I'd be walking down Fort Lauderdale, and I would go on the intercoastal waterway, and there was one yacht after another. Anybody ever been there? I mean, on the inland waterway in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, if you watch Miami CSI, they show you that beautiful picture of the inland waterway and everything. When I was a kid, very often, I would walk down those waterways, and all these yachts would be lined up. And, man, I'd be looking at the name, you know, the Sumay and the Belly Sue and all kinds of different weird names. And I remember one day I saw a man, he was working the thing, and I said, how much does that yacht cost? He said, if you have to ask, don't. Because the people that own those yachts have unfathomable, just inexhaustible wealth. So I want you to think of Bo Pilgrim, like as Mary and I sat there, part of our feeling is, man, we're not in this class. Anybody ever felt that way? You know. In fact, the people they were sitting at, Their friend actually flew a private jet up to Racine, Wisconsin, got his old friends that he got to know, and then he brought them back to Dallas. So our feeling is, wow, incredible wealth. I don't have the resources. Anybody have the resources? You know, to hire a private jet, you send your, go up, get your friends, and fly them back. Incredible wealth. How do you feel about the depths And how do you feel about wealth? I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. Because I want you to know that as a child of the Lord Jesus, we've been studying the book of Romans. And the book of Romans has been talking to us about the depths. It's been talking to us about the incredible riches. But it's not the depths of an ocean. It's not the wisdom or the riches. It's not the riches of some incredibly wealthy person We're talking about depth when we think about God. We're talking about riches when we think about God. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, if you look at verse uh, verse 32, as we look at Romans 11, 32, Paul concluded his section that we've been discussing in our last several times together about are the Jews forever lost? We've learned no. That down through the ages, from the time that Jesus rose again from the dead, now for 2,000 years, God has faithfully preserved a remnant of Messianic Jews in every age, including our own. In fact, I have some friends that are Jewish, both their mom and dad are Jewish, and they join me in my faith 
that Jesus is the resurrected Savior, and they acclaim him as their Messiah. And so we've learned from the book of Romans chapter 11 that though the Jewish people as a whole turned away from Jesus, didn't accept him, and they rejected him, Paul told us in Romans 11 this incredible truth. Because the Jews as a whole, as a nation, rejected Jesus, he was handed over to Pilate, and then he was put on a cross. And we've learned that it wasn't the Jews that crucified Jesus. It wasn't just the Romans that crucified Jesus, but it was all of our wickedness, all of our sin. We learned this incredible truth that in this great twist of history, Jesus' own natural-born people, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. And they put him on a cross, the Romans and all of our sin. But then on the third day, death couldn't hold him. And right at the moment, the great story of redemption is that for all of history, we've been looking forward to the child that would be born of Mary, to this great conflict that would take place with the serpent. And the serpent would be able to strike at this great messianic figure. But the Messiah would then stomp on the serpent's head and destroy him. What Paul has been told in the book of Romans is that when Jesus came and Jesus died, when Jesus rose again, that the big climactic moment in that incredible history of redemption came to fulfillment. It came to completion. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he opened the door, not just to save Abraham's physical children, but he opened the door for all men to be saved. And the argument of the book of Romans goes like this. From chapter 118, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all the wickedness of men. And Romans 118 and chapter 2 all the way to 323 says, every one of you in this room is a wicked, hell-deserving sinner. Amen? That's the incredible bad news of the gospel, that every single one of us It's bound in wickedness. And Paul brought that argument to fruition in Romans 11, verse 32. For God has bound all men over to disobedience. How many of you have ever disobeyed God? Anyone that's ever disobeyed God, raise your hand. Now, your unbelieving friends think that you all think you're good. And some of you in this room, deep in your soul, you think you're good. You think that because you do certain things that you're not disobedient. And that produces a deep arrogance in your soul. And Paul's been trying to tear that down. In fact, in the argument of the book of Romans, Paul's been saying it's not the wicked Gentile pagans who don't respond to his message. It's the religious people. It's the Jewish people, his own kin, his own flesh and blood, who keep turning away from the Messiah. Why do they turn away? Because they say, we don't need him. We want a Messiah. My unbelieving Jewish friends today tell me, the reason we didn't believe in Jesus is we didn't want a Messiah that didn't set us free from the Romans. We wanted a Messiah that would fulfill the ultimate promises of David. We wanted a Messiah that would throw Caesar in the tank, that would set up a, a, a throne room in the city of Jerusalem, And I've had Israeli guides late at night, as we talked about Isaiah 53, that say, we don't believe Isaiah 53 speaks about Jesus at all. What we're looking for is a great political leader who will use his power to protect us from the Arabs around us 
and will enable us not to have suicide bombers. We want a power man, and we didn't want a savior that let the Romans kill him. That was the problem after the ages. We don't want a weak savior. We want a power savior. I've actually had Jewish friends tell me that. What are they really saying is, we don't think we're disobedient. In fact, there's a whole levy in this room that you feel like, I know that I am disobedient, but I'm not as bad as the next guy. And so when all is said and done, when I die and God grades in the curve, I'll get in. Anybody ever heard that? I want you to understand that that's what a ton of your friends out there think. That they know they're wicked. They know that they're disobedient. Just like it said, God, it says here in verse 32, it says, For God has bound all men in disobedience. God has put everybody in disobedience. But most of your friends think that in this tank, that all those that are disobedient, God's going to look at them and they're going to grade in the curve. And those that aren't quite so bad, they're going to get in. They're going to get into heaven. That's the dominant view across the world today. You know what Romans has been teaching us? It does say that we're all in a tank of disobedience. And it does say that God will be absolutely fair. If you're Adolf Hitler and you never respond to the cross of Christ and you never respond to the resurrection, then you're going to be in the total tank, the depths of hell. If you're a marvelous religious person, if you're like Bill Gates who get, and his wife who gives billions of dollars away to the poor, but you, we need to pray that they'll receive in Jesus, but as far as I know, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't trust in Jesus right now. And they're given all these good things. Well, God will be totally fair. God will look at Bill Gates and his wife someday, and he'll be totally fair and said, I had my son there for you. You could have trusted him. You could have humbled yourself, and I wanted to give you eternal life. But because you did those good things, I'll reward you. You're going to be a little bit higher up in eternal judgment. That's what the book of Romans is actually saying. And I also want you to understand that Dave Wurtzen is in that same tank. I'm not any better than Bill Gates. If you look relatively, yeah, you know, Hitler killed six million people. But I killed my cat because I was angry. And if one of my kids would have been in the way, I would have knocked their head off. So I have the murderous violence of Auschwitz sitting in my soul. That makes a great pastor. That's what the book of Romans has been telling us. Every one of you need to understand, God has bound every one of us into disobedience. God doesn't grade in the curve. In hell, he will reward everyone according to what they've done, but will be lost. But that's not God's desire. God didn't create human beings to be lost. It tells us here that God has bound all men into disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. And this Thanksgiving, what I want you to be thankful for is the mercy of God. How many of you are thankful for the mercy of God? You know what the mercy of God is? None of us deserve to get in. Every one of us is at a courtroom of heaven. Before the courtroom of heaven, we all are condemned sinners for all of sin and can show the glory of God. For the wage of sin is death. But being justified freely by his grace, we can have reconciliation. We can have peace. We can become one. We can receive the incredible gift of a great exchange as Jesus puts his righteousness in our soul 
and he takes our sin into his cross and pays the penalty for our sin. That's what mercy means. You see, God didn't want the world to be estranged from him. He wanted the world to respond to him, and we respond to him when we believe in his mercy. Why do you think Amazing Grace is the most popular hymn in all the world? That's true. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How many of you, I've been in, in dives, you know, going after some rebellious brothers and sisters at times. And everybody in the place can be drunk, and they're all forgetting about God, and all of a sudden, somebody on a country guitar starts saying, amazing grace, and everybody joins in. Pat Rigdon and I have, have done funerals where the whole half of them don't believe in Jesus at all. They, they think you all are a bunch of churchy people. And they think you're all a bunch of hypocrites. And they think they're bad, but at least they're not hypocritically bad. But man, you start singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And everybody joins in. You can be in an Irish pub in Ireland, and the whole place can be soused. A great Irish tenor starts to sing Amazing Grace. You all join. Why is that? Because what the book of Romans has told you. Across this world, the light of Jesus, he's the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. The story of redemption is for the world. Something deep inside of us says, I'm guilty, but I want God to be merciful. And the incredible good news that the book of Romans has been telling you, that because Jesus, God's son, died, God can show mercy on just anyone, anyone, that'll just believe. That's the all in this verse, because you can't jettison all that the book of Romans taught us about faith. It was the faith of Abraham in chapter 4. God didn't automatically, some of you say, well, that's mean. God, God should just take everybody in. In fact, Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians I've ever read, held that this verse taught that there's a possibility, you know, there is a possibility that all could believe, but he, but he leaned towards believing, well, everyone's just going to get in. The book of Romans says, no, the Lord respects you too much. There's a great mystery in what we learned. You got to trust. You have to receive the gift. If you go through your whole life, like Stephen King, for example, he got hit by a, a, a van, and he's a multi-multi-millionaire, but he spent weeks, you know, think, right on the edge of eternity. But he still, to this day, thinks you as a church person that believes in Jesus is a bad person. You've been a source of much evil. The golden compass that's getting ready to come out is written by a friend of, of Hawkins, Richard Hawkins, who's one of the leading atheists. And Hollywood really toned down the golden compass because they want you to come right with C.S. Lewis, right with Tolkien. But there's a major difference between the Narnia tales and the Lord of the Rings and the golden compass. The golden compass wants to teach your kids that it's the church thing, it's Christendom, and there's reasons for believing that. 
And it's what I'm teaching you this morning. That's the evil that your kids. And what really happened is when a girl finally comes to maturity and early in her adolescence she has sex, that's when she's really alive. What the scripture is saying here is that person can make millions writing those books and they can make millions on the movies. They can have all those riches. But they're going to miss the mercy of God. The incredible thing I want you to realize is that God bound all men over to disobedience. And it's one of the truths that you work with unbelieving people. You want to not just live separate from them. You want to live together with them. And you want to be communicating to them that I don't think I'm better than you. That I don't think I'm a goody, goody, goody person. I'm not earning my way to heaven. In fact, I admit more than ever that I'm a sinner. But I rejoice in the incredible mercy of God that's been given to us in Jesus. For Jews first, and then for the Gentiles. And Romans 11 has taught us that there's going to come a new day when finally the Jews respond. And when Paul gets a hold of that message, he just busts forth and prays. He says, oh, the depth. Remember when I was diving and that incredible feeling that I had as I went into the darkness and I couldn't find the bottom. But instead of it being a place of death, like when I was diving in Scruton Lake, I was always afraid I was going to run out of breath. The idea of depth here wants to give you that incredible, awesome dread and fear. But if you know Jesus, then you don't have to be afraid of the depths. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to dive into some experience in life. You're going to get so down deep, and you're not going to ever get out of it because God's mercy has come to you. So now Paul is saying that the depth that arises all this fear and all this dread, now it's the unfathomableness of God's mercy. It's the incomprehensibility. It's the fact that his love for you and his grace to you will never come to an end. That his mercy is so deep, there's no bottom to it. It also reminds us, you see, when I dove and I felt I could hit the bottom, even as a little kid, I said, I got a handle on this. I got control. When I dove down, even if it was really dark, when I hit the bottom, I go, man, I got it. What a great athlete I am. But when I dove and it was too deep, it scared me. And I wasn't in control. In fact, the really scary thing is when you go down maybe 30 feet. That's about as far as I could get down before I thought I was going to really die. And I still couldn't hit the bottom. Then I'm not in control. And that's what this word it means. But it's not related for you as a child of God, if you know Jesus. It's not related to cause you to feel this dread that you're going to be eternally condemned. Instead, he wants you to think that you're in the depths a bottomless, incredible, incredible life-giving water that will never run out of the mercy of God towards you this morning. He says, oh, the depth. And then he says, oh, the riches. Oh, the depth of the riches. Remember I told you about Bo Pilgrim? What's the riches that really count? He's going to go on and express to us. It's not the money that we have. It's not that we can buy private jets. Ebby Holiday was an, is, an, is an older lady, very older. Bo Pilgrim was funny as could be, but I'm sure he's way up in years. And you know what? I did a funeral you know, earlier this week, and I do poor funerals and rich funerals. 
And you know what? When they're lying in that box, all the G4s in the world, those are big, fancy private jets, don't help. In fact, the lady that I buried built, her husband built a ton of houses. It was Ella Fern Curry's precious sister, Bill. And her husband built a lot of things up in Dallas. We had to drive way up to Dallas. We drove right through the neighborhoods that her husband, David, built. But interesting, as we drove through those neighborhoods, they've now gone down. And none of you that are upper middle class would want to live there now because the neighborhoods changed and the houses are wearing out and they're growing old. And I couldn't help but think, you know, there was a day when I first moved to Dallas, that was the area. But now it isn't because the wealth of this world turns to dust. But the wealth that Paul is talking to us about in the book of Romans never wears out. He says how his riches, and he relates this to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And the wisdom of God and his knowledge in, in Romans 11 is built on God's unsearchable, unfathomable judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. What, and the idea, so God is, could talk about wisdom and he could talk about knowledge in many different ways. But now it's his wisdom in providing redemption for you. It's his knowledge in providing redemption for you. You'll never figure it out. You'll never get this puzzle figured out. And rather than that being a really negative thing, rather than that being a bad thing, that's a good thing. It says, who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his advisor? The Lord God of heaven doesn't need to have a cabinet. He doesn't need to have wise men like David had Ahithophel and Hushai who were his counselors. The Lord is saying here, the Lord in his court of heaven doesn't need any advisor. He says, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And that's what I've been building up when I've been teaching about we're all locked in sin. None of us can ever say, well, God, I've earned it. You owe me. And one of the ideas you want to resist in your heart is this idea, God, you're giving me a raw deal. Don't ever relate to God like that. Because if God deals with us in justice, we're going to be condemned. But the mystery of his judgment is though we deserve judgment, it's saying in this verse that none of us can ever get God in our debt. But the incredible, wondrous thing is though we can never get God in our debt, we all deserve hell, God has offered us mercy instead through his Son. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Him be glory forever. Throughout the Greek world that Paul was raised in, for example, Marcus Aurelius was an emperor that came after the time of Paul, and that's what you would say of Zeus, or that's what you would say about the immovable mover that was out there. You would say everything is from him and everything is through him and for him are all things. In other words, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he's the purpose. What Paul is saying is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one out of whom are all things. I want to close with this. A scientist, a scientist says, like you read Time Magnet, it says science is going to explain to us where good and evil come from. It's the latest Time Magazine. So I read the whole article. It said that if I put a brick right through your front lobe, your personality will change. Good insight. I agree. They, get all, they, they even talk about, they talk about chimps. 
that chimps have group think. For example, if you have a rule among a bunch of chimps that they can't eat until everyone's gathered, two teenage chimps goofed off, and they actually had to keep the chimps away from the rest of the chimps that night because they would have killed them. The next day, they put the two teenage chimps back with them, and the moms and daddies gave them a spanking. They're smarter than us. They didn't beat them up. They didn't child abuse them, but they gave the, the two teenage chimps a spanking. And guess what? The next time when they fed them, those chimps were the first to get to the table. So chimps can learn behavioral stuff. Maybe better than some of our kids learn it, right? I read all through the article. They even talked about, you know, like I talked about a gorilla. Some little kid got in a cage in a zoo with a gorilla, and the gorilla tenderly took it, held it in its arms, and brought it, the little baby in the cage, brought the little baby to his trainer and gently handed the little baby to his trainer. So motherly care for the, for the let's praise gorillas. You know what I never read in that article? The article said, science is going to tell us the answer to right and wrong. I got all the way to the end, and they said, we still don't have it figured out yet. Why is that mankind can be Mother Teresa and they can be Hitler? You know, why they can be Mahatma Gandhi and why they can be Stalin? Never told us that. But one thing that was totally absent from that article, it never talked to me about the part of my brain that I put a brick through that causes human beings not to worship God. There was not one statement in the article. Science is going to tell us the secret of where right and wrong come from. But the title of the article wasn't Science is going to tell us why everywhere you go in the world, every archaeological dig in every museum that I've ever looked at, you know how I tell the difference when I go to an ancient museum like a Canaanite museum or an Egyptian museum that Mary hates? You know, she's a great wife. She goes through all these museums with me. But you know how I know it's not a chimp dig or an ape dig? Because in all the human digs, There's always religious stuff. There's always a concern for the invisible God. And as an archaeologist, if you're an archaeologist, you know that that's true. You know why? Because we come out of him. You've all heard the old joke. Scientists today are going to solve the problem. So the scientist says, man, I figured out the DNA, the genetic code. I know how to do it. And so the scientist says, I'm ready to compete with you. So they have a big pile of dirt, and God fashions Adam just like he did back in the garden. and goes, and Adam becomes alive. The scientist says, that's no big deal, man. I can do that. He's got all of his electronic stuff and all of his power and everything. And so he says, let me have the lump of dirt. And so he's got this lump of dirt, and God says, no. God reaches forth, takes away the lump of dirt, and says, that's my dirt. That's always the question in science. I want all you to know in science. The Bible's not telling you not to investigate. When Galileo determined the way that the planets moved, it wasn't removing a gap. And Galileo didn't believe he was removing a gap. Galileo believed in Jesus, like I taught you today. And what Galileo actually wrote in his diary is the Bible tells me the way of redemption. And I'm so thankful for that. And through natural revelation, I've been able to trace out the hand of my father, and I've determined a little bit about the way that his stars move. But astronomy and my telescopes will never tell me how to get right with God. 
So out of him, I want all of you to know that we don't worship a God that's of the gaps. He created the dirt. He created the universe. He created us. He doesn't abandon us. We are living through him today. And I close that we've been created for him. Stephen King, I mentioned him earlier. Stephen King says, you know what makes my stories really scary? Stephen says, I don't really believe in the God of the Bible. Even after he almost got run over, still don't believe in the God of the Bible. But he said something really interesting when I heard him interview. A lot of you go to see scary movies, and it's all focused on the bad dragon. That goes, boo! And you go, ah, like that. Those are just old-timey Halloween stories. You know why Stephen King is read by millions upon millions of people? Because of the personalities. Because in The Shining, he makes you care about the little boy. If you go to see The Mist, Stephen King wants you to care about the people. And I asked Stephen King, if we're all just a bunch of colliding atoms, then as an author... Why is this incredible gift of personality so important? Why is there no story? You just told me as an author that just colliding atoms and mechanical dragons don't scare us at all. What really scares us is when we start to care for people and persons. And what I want to tell you today, the book of Romans says that you were created for him that God wants to have an intimate personal relationship with you that lasts forever and ever. It teaches that for the ultimate being in the universe became a human being, a person that could think, feel, and decide, that we could fall in love with, that one day we could experience his touch. And I don't want any of you to miss it. I want you to be incredibly thankful. I want us just to be down on our knees with Paul. Paul finishes this theology section of the book of Romans, and instead of it becoming dry as toast and boring, Paul is down at his knees, and he's just worshiping. Oh, the depth. Oh, the riches. And Bo Pilgrim, praise God, doesn't just have material wealth. I'm not saying I agree with all of his chickens. But I want you to know that that night, Bo Pilgrim was saying, Jesus died for me. Jesus rose again for me. That's my real wealth. And my friend that was there to be honored for his entrepreneurship and his giving, when he got up at the end, he and his wife both said, all the glory, all the praise needs to go to Jesus. I'm just a normal kid. In fact, I don't deserve anything I've got. I'm just standing before you just because of the mercy and the love of God. And one day, I trust that all of you will stand with us before this incredible throne of the lamb that was slain, and we're going to praise and give glory to his mercy forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that we'll never be able to read Paul's hymn again. I pray that we'll learn to read it out loud, that we'll learn to pray it with the Apostle Paul, for out of him and through him and for him, to him be glory forever and ever. Lord, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are thankful for our country. We're thankful for our material blessings. But most of all, we are so thankful to you for providing this incredible mercy, this incredible path of forgiveness through your Son. I'd ask you, Lord, that your Spirit would stir us to never turn away 
from this unspeakable, unfathomable, rich gift. I pray that we'll never get tired of exploring the depth of your love. And I thank you, Lord, that we can know that our God will never run out of the riches and the depths of his mercy. And because of that, we can keep reaching out to one another. And we can keep reaching out to our unbelieving friends. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.